Okay. <laughs> well, we are continuing this morning with our study through the book of Acts, and today we're looking at Acts 16, verses 6 to 24. We're in the beginning stages of Paul's second missionary journey. Um, Barnabas was with Paul on his first journey, and he and Paul, of course, you remember, had a disagreement on whether John Mark should go with him on the second journey. Uh, Paul emphatically said no. He deserted us the first time. Barnabas was wanting to give him another chance. They both stood firm, and as a result, Barnabas took Mark with him. They went to the island of Cyprus to strengthen the believers there who, who, were, who, who had believed as a result of that first journey. And then Paul took Silas with him, and they went to Syria and Cilicia, other uh, aspect of that journey, um, to strengthen in the churches established on that first journey uh, there. One of the things that Luke tells us then about the early verses of chapter 16 is how Timothy was added to the mission team. He was a young man who lived in Lystra, uh, one of those towns that they had been in earlier and started a church there. He was already a committed disciple of Jesus Christ. We know that both his mother and grandmother were Christians and had a big part in his salvation, taught him the scriptures from the time he was a child, and God used that to give him the wisdom that led to salvation. Paul also did something interesting with Timothy, and since his father was Greek, that meant that Timothy would not have been circumcised as a child. Well, that had absolutely no effect on his salvation or his relationship with the Lord in any way. But Paul's concern was that it would close doors to reaching Jewish people with the gospel. The Jews were so focused on that issue that if one of Paul's mission team was uncircumcised, they would not have been allowed to enter the synagogue in the cities that they were going to. Paul had a real heart for the Jews and wanted to uh, continue to share the gospel with them. So in light of that, he and Timothy agreed that he should be circumcised, and he was. In the meantime, the other thing that's going on is that the mission team was sharing the results of the Jerusalem Council with the churches that they visited. These decrees actually affirmed that a person was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Uh, no additional works like circumcision were necessary. They were also sharing things that the Gentile Christians were encouraged to do to live in harmony with the Jews. So as they continued to be faithful to the Lord, faithful to the gospel, the churches were being strengthened. They were continuing to increase in number, it says, even on a daily basis. Well, that brings us to the verses that we are considering this morning. So we're going to pick up in verse 6 and read through verse 24. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia and concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace and on the day following to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. <coughs> and we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. We sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of copper fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. 
and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Two main ideas that we'll be considering from these verses this morning. Uh, first is how Paul and the mission team continued to move further into the Roman Empire with the gospel and how God guided them uh, in that ministry. And then second, we're going to look at, at their ministry to people who had great need in the city of Philippi. So first, Paul and the mission team were moving westward through the Roman Empire, seeking to share the gospel with the Jews first and also the Greeks. Well, we see in verse 6 that they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region. It was in this region that the city of, cities of Pisidian Antioch and Iconium were located. Those were two of the main cities that Paul and Barnabas had visited on the first journey. People had put their faith in Christ there, and the churches had been started in those cities. But as they continued to move westward to places that they had not previously visited, they ran into a problem. The problem was that the Holy Spirit would not allow them to speak the word in Asia. Asia would include cities like Ephesus and Colossae. Paul would visit these cities at a later time, but the Lord made it clear that it was not to be done at this particular time. And then they tried to go north into Bithynia, but once again, the Lord would not permit that to happen. Ultimately, the Lord gave Paul a vision that directed them to Macedonia, and as a result, they made their way to the city of Philippi, which is in Macedonia. A couple things I want to consider about these verses. <clears throat> First, we need to think about how Paul determined the direction of the mission team overall. So we know that, point A, that Paul had clear revelation from God that he was to bear the name of Christ before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. With biblical wisdom, he planned his ministry accordingly. <clears throat> so as we think about the cities that Paul and Barnabas visited on their first journey, along with those visited to this point in the second journey, you do not get the impression that they were asking for direction from the Lord on which city to visit. That doesn't mean that there was not any direction from the Lord because there most definitely was. Paul had the kind of direct revelation from the Lord that really none of us have ever received. It goes back to when he was converted on the road to Damascus. You remember he was actively persecuting the church in those days. In Acts 9, we see that Paul had received permission from the high priest 
to go to Damascus and search the synagogues to see if there was any there who were trusting in Jesus as the Christ. His intent was to arrest them, bring them back to Jerusalem to stand trial before the Sanhedrin. Lord intervened on the road to Damascus. Jesus Christ revealed himself to Paul and saved him. Christ also revealed to Paul the ministry that God had for him. He said, this is in Acts 9.15, He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Now how that calling was going to play out providentially was revealed providentially to Paul uh, over time. It was through the church at Antioch that Paul and Barnabas were called to begin that first missionary journey. They began by going to Cyprus. Very likely the reason they chose that first because that was Barnabas' homeland. Then they began to move north into modern-day Turkey. They methodically moved from one city to the next. They would always begin with the synagogue if there was one in town. And then when the Jewish leadership uh, would reject the gospel, they would turn to the Gentiles. Once they reached Derby, they began to retrace their steps and revisit those cities, help them plant churches, and called elders to give leadership into the churches. They do all of this based on the revelation that Paul had received at his conversion, and the church at Antioch had confirmed to he and Barnabas. There's no evidence that I know of that they were looking for a specific word from God on which city to go to next. They just went to the one that was next on the road. They also gave priority to starting local churches and then doing what they could to encourage and strengthen those churches. This was a spiritual priority based on things that Jesus had taught and had been put into practice by the church at Jerusalem. In other words, they were using biblical wisdom to plan their ministry. Biblical wisdom is based on the revealed word of God. It includes making plans based on the principles of the scriptures. It includes submitting yourselves and your plans to God in prayer. It includes recognizing God's providence may very well cause us to reevaluate what we have planned. And overall, it means that you are living with Jesus Christ as your Lord and trusting him to give you the strength and insight you need to honor him. I believe this is what Paul and his mission team did. And I believe it's what we're supposed to do with the decisions that we're faced with. I've heard this described, and I've used this phrase before, as sanctified common sense. We're supposed to use sanctified common sense. Sometimes Christians can get paralyzed in their life because they're waiting for God to give them some kind of revelation on what they're supposed to do next. I personally believe that's a mistake. I know from experience that waiting for a specific word from God can cause big problems in your life. And your lack of follow-through on things often has an impact on others as well as you're just kind of waiting for a particular word from God. The Lord guides us through his word. He guides us by his spirit. And we want to structure our life around the things that please him. And it's the word of God, of course, that tells us what that is. And, of course, God uses people. That's all, and Scripture speaks about that as well. He uses people to help us think through the big decisions, uh, Lord used the church at Antioch, the leaders especially, and the church as a whole to confirm the need for Paul and Barnabas to go on, on mission uh, throughout into the Roman Empire. He does the same for us. He often uses family, spiritual leaders in your life, uh, friends. But overall, as the book of Proverbs tells us multiple times, we are supposed to pursue wisdom. 
and seek to make wise choices as we're faced with various decisions in life. Well, of course, there's another part to the situation with Paul and, and the mission team here. We see in verses 6 through 10 that God overruled the wise decisions that the missionaries had made because he had something else in mind. Read those verses for you again. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So we see here that the Lord sovereignly intervened and directed Paul to go directly to Macedonia and share the gospel with them. He and the team immediately obeyed. They immediately obeyed. So they were trying to go into Asia, but it says they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So then they were trying to go into Bithynia, and it says the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them to do that. We're not told how this happened. Uh, we don't know if there were providential hindrances that just made it impossible to go those directions. Some have suggested that maybe Paul or somebody on the mission team, Silas or Timothy, got sick or got injured. Some think, because if you notice here in verse 10, that's where the we passages start. Luke has actually joined the team now. Luke was, a, is, 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 was known as a physician. So did he join the team because there was some sort of medical problem? And that is what kept them? We don't know if that happened or not. That's just really speculation. But even if some of those things did take place, the scriptures make it clear that it was the Spirit himself who actually stopped them from doing what they were wisely planning to do. Now, Silas, by the way, this is another possibility on how they could have understood this. In Acts 15.32, you might remember that Silas was described as a prophet. So maybe the Lord spoke directly to their situation through him. We aren't told just how this happened. It's interesting to note that in verse 6, it says they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 7, it says the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Well, using the phrase, phrase Spirit of Jesus, I think is a reminder that Jesus of, of Christ and being exalted at the right hand of the Father, back in Acts 2.33 it was as he was exalted the, from, from the right hand of the Father that Jesus poured out the Spirit on the disciples at Pentecost. The ministry of Paul and every other believer is in the context of Jesus Christ building his kingdom. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, and because of that, he has commissioned his church to make disciples of all nations. So by using the term Spirit of Jesus... I believe we're being reminded of that, of the context of these things. We don't know why the Lord did not allow the mission team to go into Asia or Bithynia at this time. Some would say you want them to go ahead and move on into Europe instead of Asia. That's a possibility because they did end up going to Europe. But it's just the idea here of trusting his purposes, knowing that they're best for whatever reason. And Paul and the rest of the missionaries obviously believed and just responded to what the Lord, how he directed them. Um, they ended up in Troas, which is in Mysia. It was a port city between Europe and Asia, uh, Asia Minor. 
It was a very strategic city. It's the kind of city that Paul would want to preach in and start a church there, but he was not given the opportunity to do that until later. It was in Troas that the Lord gave a vision to Paul of a man of Macedonia standing and making an appeal to him. He says, come over to Macedonia and help us. This was very much out of the ordinary. You could tell by just even the way they were, as they were kind of going this way, this way, that this, this had not happened before. But it was a very clear direction from God. The Lord was overruling the wise decisions the team had made because he had something else in mind. So then, but they then used wisdom again in deciding what to do after that. Because you notice he didn't say go to Philippi. It says they concluded God wanted them to go to Macedonia and preach. So the idea of concluded, in other words, they drew conclusions, wise conclusions from this. And then we see in verse 12, they further concluded they should go specifically to Philippi. That was because they reasoned it was the key city in the district of Macedonia. So another example of biblical wisdom here is that they immediately obeyed the Lord. Biblical wisdom is wisdom that is obedient to the Lord. So ultimately, living by sanctified common sense means that we are living with Jesus Christ, really, as Lord of our life. They went not knowing what the Lord had in store for them, which leads us to our second main point. The people of Philippi were in great need of gospel help. The rest of chapter 16 speaks of the ministry that took place there, at least the things that uh, Luke shares with us. Verse 11, 12 says, So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to the Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, we were staying in this city for some days. So this describes the course that the mission team took to get to Philippi. They set sail from Troas, spent the night on an island named uh, Samothrace. From there, they went the next day and went on to Neapolis. This was a port city that would put them about 10 miles from Philippi. Philippi was a city that was modeled after Rome in many ways. It's the only city in Acts that's specifically described as a Roman colony. David Peterson in his commentary says that Roman colonies were originally settlements of Roman citizens in an area that Rome had conquered. And as a designated Roman colony, they had the same legal rights as their fellow citizens in Italy. Well, in light of the vision of the man from Macedonia saying, come and help us, what do you think Paul and the others with him were expecting when they got there? It would almost give you the impression that there were people who were primed and ready to hear the gospel. But for the most part, that was not true. We see all kinds of people who clearly needed to hear the gospel described in this chapter. But the overwhelming majority had no idea that that was the help they needed. They were blind to that. One exception is the first one we're going to look at. The first person we're introduced to in Philippi is Lydia. We read about her in verses thir- beginning in verse 13. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening 
and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful in the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So we see here that God, Paul shared the gospel with some Jews and Gentile God-fearers outside the city of Philippi. Lydia needed the Lord to open her heart, open her heart to understand and respond to the gospel in faith. <coughs> it's interesting to note that at the end of verse 12, Luke says that they had been staying in the city of Philippi for some days. I mean, it's not like somewhat, and not a real long time, but an extended some extension of time. So for those number of days, you would kind of assume they were probably looking for opportunities to speak to people about Jesus Christ, but apparently nothing materialized. The people who needed help were not showing any interest. So on the Sabbath day, they went outside the city and found a group of women gathered for prayer. This tells us that there was probably was not a synagogue in the city of Philippi, and that's could be as many as two reasons for that. First, there had to be at least 10 Jewish men in a city for a synagogue to be established, and uh, there's not even any mention of men involved in this prayer meeting. There could have been, but they're not mentioned if there are. But secondly, it may very well have been that the laws of the Roman colony discouraged, maybe not even permitted, but at least maybe discouraged a synagogue being built that actually seems to be alluded to over in verse 21 later. And it seems likely that the women were made up of some who were Jews and some who were Gentile God-fearers. It's not clear whether Lydia was Jewish or Gentile. Uh, commentaries I've read thought one or the other. I mean, they had different opinions on that. It seems most likely to me she was probably Gentile. We're told she was from Thyatira. That was a city famous for purple dye and uh, textiles. Purple clothes were worn by people who were influential and wealthy. Anybody got purple on here today? Purple clothes were, were worn by people who were influential and, and, and wealthy in some way. Lydia may have opened up a shop in Philippi where she sold purple dye clothing, maybe both. She was probably pretty well off financially just because of who her customers would have been. She was also clearly a religious person. She's called a worshiper of God and is, and is part of a group gathered for prayer. But just being religious did not mean that she was a Christian. It's very likely she had not even heard the gospel before. The one thing we see that she was doing while Paul was speaking is that she was listening. She was paying attention. Well, Paul was sharing, obviously, the word of the Lord, the gospel. We're told that Lydia responded in faith and was baptized. But that did not happen just because she was a good person. It did not happen because she was a religious person. In fact, many of the religious people, as you know, were the ones who actively opposed what Paul was preaching. But Luke tells us that the reason she responded the way that she did is because the Lord opened her heart to respond. It was not because Paul's preaching was so persuasive. I'm sure he was seeking to be persuasive. But... The reason she responded is because God took that truth and planted it in Lydia's heart, opened her heart. She probably didn't even realize she needed this help. But he opened her eyes to see that 
her sin was significant. To see that Jesus Christ had accomplished salvation for her. He enabled her to respond in faith to the gospel. That's what needs to happen for any person to become a Christian. Praise God we have access to biblical teaching and, and preaching and so forth. A blessing that is. But it's only the Lord who can open our hearts to understand the truth and enable us to respond in faith. He's the one who gets the credit for Lydia's conversion. He's the one who gets the credit for anybody's conversion. We're born again from above, as Jesus described it. It's God who makes that happen. So Lydia was a religious person who needed help. She needed to receive Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. And it was the Lord who brought that about through Paul's preaching. Seems likely that she probably invited Paul, apparently, to her home where they spoke with other members of the household. They also believed. So Lydia and her household then were then baptized as evidence of their conversion. Baptism is a symbol. It symbolizes the idea of being buried with Christ through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised uh, through the glory of the Father, so we too are, are raised to walk in newness of life. So it's a symbolic of what would have taken place in their hearts. They were all in great need of the gospel, and God provided help, the help that they needed. Lydia then, of course, uh, entreated on the mission team to stay at her house, come to her house and stay there, and that's where they stayed while they were in Philippi, apparently. We are then introduced to another person who needed help. Paul addressed a slave girl who needed help because she was possessed by an evil spirit. She was possessed by an evil spirit. 1618, it says, It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, and Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out at that very moment. This girl was demon-possessed. It's described as a spirit of divination. She was a fortune teller. She was also a slave. So not only was her life under the control of Satan, all the money she made for her fortune telling went to her masters. She truly needed help in every area of her life were introduced to her because of things she was doing regarding the mission team. So we see first that Satan used her to deceive people under the illusion of speaking the truth. Deceiving people under the illusion of speaking the truth. This girl began following Paul and the others around. She would cry out loudly, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She did this for many days. This is really quite interesting because the things she was saying were actually true. But she was saying these things as a mouthpiece for Satan. Satan is also called the father of lies. His whole character is based on deceiving, leading us, into, leading us astray. So much of the time... The way he deceives is inspiring lies about God, 
uh, lies about man, for example, saying that man is basically good. That's, that's a lie. Lies about the Christian faith. He does that. Lies about the reliability of Scripture. All kinds of things that Satan deceives and seeks to cause people to believe things that are not true, things that are lies. But in this situation, Satan is seeking to deceive by having a demon-possessed fortune teller say things that were true. And to say them over and over and over again in a very public way. Why would he do that? Well, for one thing, in the Greek-Roman world, the object of many of the vows and the prayers that they might make to their, their gods, their little g mythological gods, the object of many of those vows and prayers was salvation. Now, it was a salvation based more on physical and circumstantial needs and so forth, not at all the kind of salvation that's the focus of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It would not speak of the holiness of God or the sinfulness of man or the reality of eternal condemnation or the coming of the Son of God in human flesh to purchase salvation or the need to repent of sin and believe in Christ. wouldn't include those things at all. So when a fortune teller was making this claim, it's likely going to end up pointing people and causing people to think of the pagan gods and make a confusing connection with the pagan gods that would end up distorting the message that Paul and Barnabas were, Paul and Silas were preaching. So it is a way to pretend to believe the truth, but by pretending to believe the truth, end up denying the gospel. Satan still does that. <laughs> he still does that. Still, you still have people proclaiming things that have elements of truth in them, but so much of what's around what they're saying is not true. Um, so this is still a common uh, tactic that, same, that Satan uses, using partial truth to deceive. Well, the next thing we see is that the Lord Jesus Christ delivered the slave girl from the spirit of divination through Paul. Paul was patient with what was going on for many days, but there came a, part, a point where he realized he needed to stop being patient and address this very strange situation. He turns to the girl, but it specifically says there he's not so much addressing the girl, he's addressing the demonic spirit within her, and he commanded that evil spirit to leave in the name of Jesus Christ, and that's exactly what happened. Christ came to crush the head of Satan. He is Lord of all, including Satan. This deliverance was accomplished by Jesus Christ, not by Paul. The things he did, he did in faith, but it was in dependence on Christ. So in an instant, this poor girl was delivered from the evil bondage she had been in. Who knows how long she had been in bondage to this demon. She was instantly delivered from that bondage. And she was no longer any use to her masters, so... The implication is not directly said. The implication is, you know, that maybe she was released from her slavery, her physical slavery. She was in need of help 
lots of help, and she got it. We are not told whether she put her faith in Christ. Luke doesn't address that. It would be easy, though, to see her being now open to the message that Paul and the others were sharing. It would be easy to see the members of this new fledgling church in Philippi coming alongside to help her. We don't know for sure if that happened. I think it's a good possibility, but we don't know for sure exactly what happened. So let's look at the next group of people. The slave girl's masters showed their need of gospel help and their selfish abuse of the girl and their rage when they could no longer profit from her. Beginning in verse 19, But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. So these men were clearly using a young girl for their own purposes. They had no concern for her outside of what she could do for them. They were in a rage when they saw that their hope of profit, uh, making profit off of her was gone. They grabbed, forcefully grabbed Paul and Silas. They dragged them into the marketplace. Now, the marketplace was a place where buying and selling took place. It was a marketplace, but it was also a place for public gatherings. It was a place where oftentimes judicial matters were addressed as well. Well, these slave owners, their anger was totally self-centered. They weren't concerned about the girl, only about their profits. That's what motivated them now to put their attention on Paul and Silas and drag them into the marketplace. And then when they got there, they realized that their selfishness was not going to carry the day with their fellow citizens. So they changed the charges. There was no, there was no mention of the fact that we're not making profit anymore because this girl is no longer possessed by a demon. Now they say... These men are proclaiming customs that could not rightfully, they could not rightfully observe because they were Romans. They described them as Jews, you might have noticed. They clearly did not understand the nature of the message that Paul and Silas were preaching. Judaism was a legal religion in the Roman Empire as long as it didn't threaten public order. But there was some anti-Jewish attitudes on the part of a number of Roman officials, we know that. So maybe that's coming into play here as well. I'm not sure. This really reminds me, just thinking about this whole situation, reminds me of a verse that the Wednesday night Bible study group uh, looked at from Ecclesiastes. I'm going to read to you Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1. Solomon says, Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of the oppressors, was power, but they had no one to comfort them. The slave girl was clearly one who was oppressed. I mean, from every angle of her life, she was being oppressed. But that verse in Ecclesiastes also points out that there was a need in the heart of the people who were doing the oppressing. The slave owners needed their hearts to be changed but they were not interested in that. These immoral men make up charges in order to get revenge, and they clearly had 
need of the transforming help of the gospel, but they were not interested. Next, we see that the crowd, the crowd showed their need of gospel help when they were manipulated to violently rise up against Paul and Silas. Verse 22, we see that the crowd rose up together against them. So all they had was the selfish and dishonest testimony of the slave owners. That's all they had. They were easily manipulated and actually turned violent then against Paul and Silas. These actions showed they were not people of integrity. They were not people who cared about the truth. They had no clue about the gospel, no clue about any kind of biblical worldview. They were people who could be easily swayed by what other people said. Again, this is not new. <laughs> um, very disturbing in our day. This, this is just as common. Um, good recent verse, we talked about this in Ecclesiastes as well, about how fickle people can be and can change so quickly. It reminds me of really our population uh, at large. I mean, so much that is fickle, often at the mercy of whoever has the most intriguing story or the most compelling Facebook meme. I mean, it's so easy to get confused and to be led into a mob kind of situation. Um, maybe not a literal mob, but maybe a Facebook mob. I don't know. There is such a need for the Lord here, but the majority obviously have no interest in getting that help. Finally, we see the chief magistrates showed their need of gospel help when they followed the unruly crowd and unjustly punished and imprisoned Paul and Silas. Verse 22 24. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore the robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. On the part of the magistrates, there is no indication that there was any attempt to find out the truth of what really happened. There is no indication that they examined Paul and, Bar and, uh, and Silas in a sense of asking questions, trying to find out what was going on from them. No indication that they consider what the law required of them as civil magistrates. You don't get anything like that. Instead, they were content to give the mob who were stirred up by the slave owners to give that mob what they wanted. They were content to do it that way, to punish. It says they were beaten with rods, uh, tore their robes off, began to beat them with these rods. One thing at least the Jews had when they had scourging, you could only um, whip someone, they called it 40 times minus one, so 39 lashes. There was no limit. The Romans didn't have a limit on that. So they were beaten with rods, thrown into a, 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 to jail, prison, more probably more of a dungeon-type situation, and they did not even know if the guys were guilty. Didn't even know if they were guilty or not. The Scriptures tell us that every civil magistrate has been ordained by God as one of his servants, as his minister of justice. That's a high obligation. And it's one that every person who serves in the civil government has to give an answer to God for. Well, these men showed by their actions they had no concern for law. They were not men of integrity. 
They were not concerned about true justice. They needed help. They needed to have their sinful hearts transformed by the gospel, but they could care less. Now, it's interesting to note that there's so many people in these verses who showed that they did, in fact, need help, the help that only God could give them. But when the Lord sent men who could actually share that gospel with them, they emphatically reject it. They even punished the messengers that God sent. But we also see that God showed mercy to one, and actually turned out to be her whole household. He opened up the heart of Lydia to hear, to understand, and respond to the truth of the gospel. You can just even just see, just in those couple of verses, that her life and her whole family, her household, was transformed by the gospel. So it reminds us here, too, of just how grateful we are for the grace, the grace that the Lord bestows on us when he brings us into his family. And we are so grateful for his help because we know we all need it. Well, we want to thank you very much for your word. We thank you for the, just the guidance that you give us and remind us here about the, the need to make good God-honoring choices to grant us wisdom. Lord, I know there's probably a number of us in here, many who are trying to think of think through various decisions. Lord, I ask that you would lead um, lead people to actually consider biblical wisdom and making those applications to their particular circumstance. Lead them to the counselors who might be able to give them help. But I just ask that you would provide wisdom. We also know that uh, you have a way of kind of... Uh, redirecting us if it looks like we're going the wrong direction. So we trust you to do that as well. But Lord, I want to thank you especially for showing us here that we all need help. Every one of us, no matter what our situation in life is, we all need help. Even the most religious person in this chapter, Lydia, needed help. Just being religious was not good enough. She had to have her heart changed. Lord, we all are in position where we need help. And we thank you so much for being a God of grace who actually brings that help to us through Jesus Christ. We may be in darkness, but actually you're the one who gives light so that we can see our own sin, but we can also see the salvation you provided for us. If you're one who's never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I would invite you to do that. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I am a sinner. I see that there is sin in my life. But I also see, I also understand that Jesus Christ came to be my Savior, and I want to receive him as my Savior. I want to submit my life to him as the Lord of my life. My sin needs to be cleansed. I need righteousness, and only Christ can do that. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment to Christ, you can make a note on your tear-off, or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website.